Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Okay, I would invite everyone to turn to Romans 1, verse 3, and then we'll pray and get started. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, precious Lord, divine spirit, we thank you for giving us an opportunity for such a time as this and yield before you, divine teacher, to illuminate our minds and we lean and trust in you as the one who is really teaching us that these words will transform our minds, grow our faith, and animate our characters, that we, O Lord, may not only know and understand your word, but in knowing your word, draw closer to you and walk with you with a greater intimacy and love, step by step and day by day. Lead us, O Lord, in your will and your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So today we're going to be, God willing, we'll finish Romans chapter 1, verse 3. And And Paul there is talking about the gospel And he says the gospel is concerning his son, concerning Jesus, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, when we originally began studying the book of Romans, what I explained to the church was that the reason why we're studying the book of Romans is because Romans clarifies for us foundational truths of the Christian faith. And using that nugget of information, I'm going to introduce to you today the theme of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. These are the core, central, these are the the doctrines that are at the foundation of the foundation of what we believe. And when we have a thorough biblical understanding of what these core doctrines are, we will all not only know what we believe, we will also know why we believe it, and we will also be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And of course, it goes without saying, that all of these five doctrines come from the inerrant, the infallible Word of God in the Bible. Now, as a a disclaimer, when I say these doctrines are core or crucial, that's not to suggest that other doctrines are irrelevant or not significant. All we're saying is that these doctrines are core and help us to understand what God is doing in salvation. Romans 1-3 is talking about the gospel or the proclamation of God's salvation plan. So these five core doctrines gives us a clear understanding of salvation. And the other disclaimer I will say is that, as many as it is readily obvious to many thus far, the Bible never says these are five core doctrines, right? We all know that. We're just using this classification system for us so we can 
compartmentalize our understanding and have a clear, have a clear biblical way of articulating what we believe and why we believe it. Okay. So last time, we talked about two things. We talked about the Trinity, and we talked about the Son, Jesus Christ. So here now is core doctrine number one. And for all of these five core doctrines, you have to know this. You must know this. There's no other option, right? So I would, I would choose a place in your Bible where you can easily reference it and you can easily remember it so you won't lose these five pieces of information. We're going to get through two of the core five doctrines today. So core doctrine of the Christian faith, number one, is the Trinity. Now, we spoke about the Trinity last time. So someone tell me, when I say the Trinity or the doctrine of the Trinity, what am I talking about? Correct. So we serve one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is co-equally and co-eternally God. We serve one God in three persons. Each person of the God of the Trinity is co-equally and co-eternally God. What distinguishes the different persons of the Godhead aren't their attributes, are not their essences, but how they relate to one another. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now here's the tough question. Now that we know what the doctrine of the Trinity is, when we're talking about understanding salvation, why does the Trinity matter? Let me ask another way. Now that we know what the doctrine of the Trinity is, how does that help us to understand how God save us? Why couldn't there be just one Unitarian God, just one God in one person? Why does the Trinity matter for understanding salvation? This question is not easy. Yeah. It is not easy. To understand the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to understand the nature of God. True, but it could still be one God and one person. And I would counter that by saying, yes, he came as a man, but God didn't theoretically need to be a trinity to do that. Okay. Here's the... If, if he came, if there was just one, and he came, who would be, you know, who would be orchestrating the universe? That's why the Father, the Spirit, okay, God is a Spirit, right? And if a Spirit came, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know, right? So it, was, it came in three parts. It was the Spirit sent the Son. The Son, when he was leaving, he said the Holy Spirit was going to be... Amen. So it's, it's three. 
you you just gave a very intelligent answer into how we can validate God as real in our material world. Because if God exists and is separate and other from our material realm, the only way we could actually know God using our senses is if God penetrates the veil of the material realm and actually incarnates. So you're correct in that how do we know God is real? Because we talked with him, we walked with him, we had fish with him, and all that makes um, our faith real and concrete. But still, if God is spiritual, even though God becomes a man, that doesn't limit the fact that God always was, is, and will be God. So here's the answer. And we get a clue into why the Trinity matters for salvation in 1 John 4.8. One God, three persons. That means what? That God is relational. There's a relationality in and amongst the three members of the Godhead. This means before God creates anything, he's already in a relationship with himself. This is why when 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love, it's in his very essence or nature. Why? Because in the Trinitarian Godhead, there's a relationality in and amongst the three persons, and that is where you get love from. So love exists before the world exists. Love exists before you and I exist. That love, which is infinite and holy and true, God is love, so he didn't need to create anything for love to exist. Now, this is how understanding that changes everything. Because God is love, if you didn't have love, that means you wouldn't have any what? Sacrificial giving. If you don't have any sacrificial giving, then you would never have the Son. You would never have Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, you never have salvation. You never have the cross. Because what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved that he gave his Son. So that love now has to exist. So now here, I'm going to incorporate everything people said. If God was only one God and one person, hypothetically speaking, that means God would now have to create something to love in order to have that relationality. And if God was one God and one person and he created something to love, what would that creation now do? Let him down. But the love that constitutes the essence of God is already in his infinite nature or character, and the grace that he bestows upon us is an outward manifestation of the fact that God is love, which can only exist if there's relationality in and amongst God himself. Now, that's a weighty idea to wrap your minds around. Does anyone have any questions on that? So that's the doctrine of the Trinity, core doctrine number one. And that's also an explanation of why the doctrine of the Trinity matters. 
Now, the other thing we spoke about last time, I mean, we, we went over it over and over and over again, is the fact that Jesus is, Jesus was, is, always will be the Son of God, which means Jesus is God. So here is now, not as tough, but tough question number two for the morning. When we're talking about understanding salvation, why does Jesus have to be God? Correct. If Jesus was just a man, he could not make a satisfactory atonement. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more when I talk about core doctrine number two, the God-man. But give me more reasons. When we're talking about understanding salvation, why does Jesus have to be God? Yes. And to develop that further, if Jesus wasn't God, then that means the Bible is lying to us. Because all the prophecies you're talking about, from the beginning of Genesis, all the prophetic voices, remember last time I said, the Father testifies to the Sonship of Christ, Jesus testifies to his Sonship, the Holy Spirit testifies to his Sonship, and all the apostles testify to his Sonship, or his deity. So if Jesus now is not God, that means the Bible is lying to us left and right from the very beginning, and it can't be trusted. But there are more reasons. Why does Jesus have to be God? And if you ever get into an argument with a Jehovah's Witness, this is the argument you're going to use. He has to be God. Jesus is a mediator between men and God. So let's think about this logically now. If you have a not God mediating for you, that mediator doesn't stand a chance when mediating with the Father, right? Because that now means God is going to accept a creature or a creation as a mediator for something. It doesn't work like that because God is infinite, holy, just, and true, and a not God cannot stand before God and advocate or mediate for anything. The other problem is this. If Jesus um, is not God, that means we have faith in a not God, which means what? That's now idolatry. That is now sin. But the, the, the icing on the cake is this. The false theological claim that Jesus is not God makes the Bible completely unbiblical. Because from beginning to end, what do you have? You have people worshiping God. That means, once again, when David writes Psalm 110 and he says, My Lord says to my Lord, who's the other Lord? Who's he talking about? When the three magi come to see baby Jesus, they fell down and they what? They worshipped him. That means those three magi were committing idolatry. In John chapter 20, when doubting Thomas finally sees the resurrected Christ, and he then says, my Lord and my God. So the false theological claim that Jesus is not God means scripture is not true, it's lying to us, and the entire revelation of God to us in Scripture falls apart. That is why, theologically speaking, when we're now understanding salvation, the deity of Christ 
must be true. We know it's true based upon what God has revealed to us and the life and ministry of Christ. But when we're now thinking about what we believe and why we believe it and trying to understand why things are the way they are, the deity of Christ is an absolute necessity for salvation. Any questions on that? Yes? Can we also say that uh, Jesus was sinless? He was. Well, that's the, the question was, can we also say that Jesus is sinless? And when we get to talking about the, the God-man, only a sinless substitutionary sacrifice, only a sinless substitutionary sacrifice would be able to make a sufficient atonement on the cross. And it's the uh, fully God and fully man in one person which enables Jesus to live a life of perfect sinlessness. So now we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning he's fully God. No question about that. But Jesus is also fully man. So Romans 1.3, talking about the gospel of God, says that it is concerning his Son who was born. So God was never born but God did become a man. And in order for that man to exist, that man had to be born. And that man that was born is a real man, a real flesh and bones person. There are many folks who say things like, Jesus was an allegory, or he was fictional, or he wasn't a real, genuine person. But he, was a, he is a real human being who really was in Mary's womb, who really went through childbirth, and he really came out a flesh and bones individual whose body followed regular norm, normal rules of human physiology. So in the carnation, when the man was born, God, Jesus, remaining what he was, became what he was not, a man, and is now fully God and fully man in one person. But not only that, he, the gospel is concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. So not only is Jesus fully man, biologically speaking now, he's a Judahite who is a descendant of King David. Now why is that fact important? Why couldn't Jesus have been a Benjamite or a Reubenite or a Danite or a Greek or a Roman? Because he, being from David's line, that means he was in the kingly line. Royal bloodline, okay. So Jesus was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. He was born in King David's biological bloodline because over and over again in the Old Testament, there were prophecies saying that the Messiah would be a son of David. For example, Isaiah 11.1, 1, Jeremiah 23.5, Matthew 22.25, and John 7.42. So, back in the Old Testament, 
The prophets made a promise that the Messiah would be a son of David, and then in the New Testament, you have the son being a, de a descendant of David according to the flesh, fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy. In fact, the Jew, it was so well known in and amongst the Jews that the Messiah would be from David's line that they referred to the Messiah as the son of David. Okay. So to add more biblical weight to the idea that Jesus had to be a descendant of David, where does the promise that the Messiah would be a descendant of David come from? I mentioned scripture references before, but there's a specific promise that God makes to King David where he's basically told the Messiah will come from your bloodline. It's a really important chapter in the Old Testament. It's a blank covenant. The Davidic covenant located in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Not only is the, uh, the promise beautiful, but from a literary standpoint, the words are just majestic and it's like a song, right? So 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wakes up one day and says, God, I'm going to build you a house. God responds in turn and says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. But when he says house, he means a dynasty. And now you have the promise of the Davidic covenant that from David's bloodline, the Messiah would subsequently be born and that Messiah would sit on a throne that would last forever. So the Old Testament promise that said the Messiah would be from David's bloodline comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this tells us something too, that from the very beginning of the Bible, God essentially narrows and narrows and narrows and narrows his promises in order to beget the Messiah being born from the house of David. In Genesis chapter 3, God basically says, from the seed of a woman, a deliverer would be born. That's pretty broad, right? Then God finds Abraham, one guy, and says, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Then he narrows it further from uh, giving uh, Israel 12 sons, but the line to which that kingly scepter will be given is to one son, Judah. So you have Abraham going to Israel, uh, going to uh, Judah, and then the line goes down through history, and a subsequent Judahite, King David, is the line through which that kingly line would flow. Telling us what? That from the very beginning, God was essentially narrowing down the course of all human events in history to beget the son of David, Jesus, from David's line. So, here's core doctrine number two. Core doctrine number one is the Trinity. One God, three persons. Core doctrine number two. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person. Now, on the surface, that sounds 
pretty reasonable based upon what we've talked about so far. But here now is a tough question. When we're talking about salvation, when we talk about God's salvation plan for human beings, why does Jesus have to be a God-man? Why couldn't he just be God? Why couldn't he just be a man? And this was alluded to before. The God-man is a mediator, right, but why does he have to be a God-man to, to mediate? Core doctrine number two, Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man in one person. He has to be the God-man because Jesus has to be divine because someone who is not divine cannot mediate for us. But what did Jesus do on the cross? He died. Because when we're talking about sin, the rule is this, to pay the penalty for sin, something has to die. But here's the problem, can God die? He can't. God cannot die in a cross because God can never die. But a God-man, can. But even more than that, if, if our mediator, our savior, was just a flesh and bones human being, a flesh and bones human being could never withstand the full wrath of God to make an atonement for all of the elect from eternity past to eternity future. So just God would be unable, just man would be unable, but a God-man could. So now, the full force and wrath of God is unleashed on the Son. Bodily, he goes into the tomb and is raised from the dead in a new imperishable resurrection body. So core doctrine number two is Jesus is the God-man, and that explains why it had to be a God-man to serve as an appropriate substitutionary sacrifice and to be our mediator. Does that make sense? The simple synopsis is this. Jesus had to be the God-man because God cannot die and a mere man could never atone. Someone temporal cannot pay an eternal debt and someone eternal cannot die to satisfy the justice of God. Okay, you had a question? Right, so the question comment basically is 1 John 4, um, 8 says God is love and many people in the modern era pervert that to basically um, use as a license to do whatever they want. 
So the thing that I always say, the biblical definition of love and the modern definition of love are two different things. Because while God is love, he's also truth, he's also just, he's also holy, and he's also sinless. So biblically defined love is a purposeful act of the will always grounded in God's truth. The modern definition of love is an emotional feeling where basically you let someone else do whatever they want to do, even if it um, goes up against God's truth, and you make them feel good about what they're doing. So the world has taken that biblical word love and twisted it to mean whatever they want to. But when we say God is love, God is not only love, but all of his other attributes at the same time. So I say all that to say, in the 21st century, if you ever quote unquote love someone, but that flies against God's truth, or you give someone a license to walk in darkness, that is not love, that is hatred in disguise. That is hatred that wears a veil of love. Because one of the worst things you could ever tell someone is say, I love you, I'm gonna let you do whatever you want, but in doing that, you now give them the keys to open the door and walk into destruction. That, that's not love. Because now you're sacrificing um, someone's eternal fate for their best life now. Never works like that because eternity matters more than the present. Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Precious Lord, we thank you for the time we have spent being able to sit under and meditate on your word. We know, O oh Lord, that understanding your nature or essence is difficult because we are finite creatures attempting to rationalize and compute an infinite God. We just ask you, Divine Spirit, as we leave here today, that you teach your word to us and give us a true, earnest understanding of your word and you that we will have an ironclad, concrete, biblical foundation of your foundational truths, and we may grow in knowledge of you, that you may water our trees that you have planted a long time ago. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.